There we go. We are live. I don't know. Who can say? Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to Open Space here on uh, Monday, of course. This is my uh, my weekly live Q&A show where I sometimes bring a guest. Sometimes uh, it's just me. This week, I'm uh, I'm really glad that I was finally able to organize this interview with Dr. Ryan Watkins, who is a specialist with the moon from the Planetary Science Institute. Uh, Dr. Watkins, welcome to Open Space. Yes, thank you for having me. So for people who uh, don't know who you are, uh, can you give us an introduction? Who are you? What do you do? Yep. Uh, like you said, my name is uh, Ryan Watkins. I work for the Planetary Science Institute. So my main area of expertise is in lunar science, so studying the moon. Uh, specifically, I, I use remote sensing data to understand uh, surface properties. So I'm, my primary data set that I use is on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. Right. Um, so I, I work with a camera system and I primarily look at images and study how um, what the reflectance properties of the moon tell us about different physical and compositional properties. And it feels like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been there forever and has yeah. really mapped the surface of the moon down to exquisite detail. I mean, it's quite yeah. impressive how much data we have for the moon at this point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And we're, we're learning new things every day. Um, and I imagine we will be for years to come with that data set. Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, when you sort of look at the the piles of missions that are in the works right now, both orbiters, landers, and eventually you know, rovers, everything that the Chinese are doing, the potential for, of course, humans to return to the moon, and not just from the Artemis program, but whatever SpaceX has planned, not to mention whatever the Chinese are planning, like, the moon is now the source of a tremendous amount of of research and investigation. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like you said, there's several countries are planning to go in the very near future, some in the more distant future. Yeah. So I would like to just talk about like, what is our current understanding about um, just like, what are the big mysteries about the moon that you're interested in getting more information on at this point? Yeah, yeah, there, there's there's a few kind of, um, I guess, key mysteries, if you want to put it that way, um, uh, big unanswered questions regarding the moon. Um, some are, you know, larger scale, the moon as a whole, uh, you know, we don't fully know how it formed, you know, there's theories, there's leading theories. Um, but we don't know. We we don't know exactly how it formed. There's a lot of questions regarding the the bombardment history of the moon, um, especially the timing of of some of the early bombardment and the early uh, lunar history. Um, did it all happen in what they call a cataclysm? You know, a bunch of impacts all at once, or was it just that over time the number of impacts died down? Um, so there's a lot of things we don't understand about the impact history. Um, one key area that I that I am interested in is volcanism. So there's you know different types of volcanism across the lunar surface is your typical uh, Mare basalts, um, which, you know, are, you know, similar to, you know, volcanism we see on the moon if you went to Hawaii or, or something. Um, there's more rare types of volcanism, like silicic volcanism that has materials like granites and rhyolites and, and things that are actually more rare on the moon. And we don't fully understand, you know, kind of source and the formation and the thermal history of the moon in, in that regards. Um, so again, lots of stuff regarding thermal history. So with, I mean, for, for those kinds of questions, like, you know, still the question is like, when did the moon exactly, how, how did it form? I know the leading theory is of course that a Mars sized object smashed into mm -hmm. the earth and splashed out, out the moon and maybe it formed in situ at the beginning. Will like, for example, those kinds of questions, like being able to, to actually sample the various kinds of, of lava flows tell you which formation theory is more likely? Um, so I'll just, you know, preface this with formation theories are not my, my main area. Of <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to have all the answers, yeah. but uh, yeah. So samples can actually tell us a lot. Um, they may not hold all of the answers to, you know, which of these theories is right about the moon or is it some that we have one that we haven't even thought of. Um, they'll probably tell us a lot more about the evolution of the moon, you know, maybe after formation, how did things, um, kind of come to be in terms of rock types and different things. Um, there's a lot of, you know, but there is a lot we can answer about looking at the composition of the rocks. You know, that's kind of how some of these theories came to be anyway, because they noticed isotopic compositions were similar to, um, on the moon, were similar to what we see on Earth. So that kind of led to the idea of a common origin um, in this giant impact hypothesis. So yeah, so having more samples with more, um, you know, compositional data can help um, as well as just improved models and, and different kind of 
kind of thing. So, but obviously, one of the areas of greatest interest is the presence and quantities of water on the moon. So, how much water do we currently think is located on the moon, and where? Yeah, I'm. I'm not going to have a number for you just because it's not water. <laughs> how many Olympic know, swimming pools? Yeah. Um, and and if I give you a number, it's going to be wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think I think that's kind of one of the questions we're still looking at. Really, is how much water? Um, because we don't fully understand both the vertical and horizontal distribution. You know, how deep does it go? How spread out is it? We kind of know. You know, if it's there, well, it is there, but. Um, it's going to be primarily at, at the poles because, you know, those areas are colder and they can retain water and ice. Um, so we don't fully know like what form it's in or how deep it goes. So I don't think we even really know exactly how much is there. Um, it, we do think it's a large enough quantity that we can go there and we can use it and humans can survive and we can, uh, you know, make things like rocket fuel. So, so it's not, you know, a better answer on that. There's a few things. Um, so we, uh, right now it's all orbital data that's given us um, kind of, or mainly orbital data, I should say, that's given us um, evidence for water and water ice. Um, so what we really need are some surface missions, uh, missions that can go to the polar areas um, and really start to take um, measurements in situ. These can be robotic or manned um, missions, um, things that can help start prospecting for resources and really kind of measuring, you know, okay, maybe how deep does it go? Maybe we need some radar or something that can give us information about what's under the surface. Um, and even more targeted orbital missions that just have, you know, the right kinds of instruments that can look for these signatures um, and really target that. Um, so again, so there's the surface and the orbital approach. It's just, you know, more data that we need. Um, and, and I mean, I know that there are various missions that are in the works mm -hmm. right now. There's, you know, when, do you think we'll start like by 20? I mean, I know all timelines are up in the air at this point, thanks to a certain worldwide event, but um, which we dare not speak its name on YouTube, uh, lest we have our video uh, shunned. But um, what, uh, you know, like, are, I mean, are there any like specific missions in the works that maybe people should be keeping their eyes on that are going to be the one that will be like, okay, you know, we're waiting for that mission to fly because it's going to give us that next level, like the way people are waiting for James Webb, right? Or the way people yeah, are yeah. waiting for, for W first. What, you know, there, is there anything specifically that you're quite excited about that we should be keeping our eye on? Yeah, yeah. If, if you want to talk in terms of, of water ice specifically, the big one to keep your eye out for is it's called Viper. Um, so it's it's a NASA funded mission. I don't remember exactly what the acronym stands for, but right. it's basically going to prospect volatiles, for resources. In volatiles, situ, something, something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Resource prospecting. Prospecting, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so it's going to be an or uh, not an orbiter, sorry, a rover, um, and it's actually going to. Um, launch on one of the, the clips providers, the commercial lunar payload service providers. So it'll be a commercial lander that will take it to the moon. And actually right now they're in kind of in the middle of, of essentially bidding or writing proposals to see who will carry this rover. Um, so we don't actually know um, who's going to take it yet. I think the timeline they're targeting is 2023 last I heard, hmm, okay. uh, plus or minus a year maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that one's going to have different instruments that can essentially measure, you know, what kinds of resources and volatiles and things like like water and oxygen hy hydrogen and things like that um, are on the moon so that's kind of the big one that's really been um, in the works to keep an eye out for you know I'm not really sure if any of the international missions are going to have those kinds of things but but everyone has their eyes on the south pole so really any mission that's going to go to the south pole you're going to just want to keep your eyes on because any of those are going to be looking for for water and water ice and and so with the south pole I mean Thanks to the, I think it was the Chandrayaan mission originally gave those first indications of, of water and other follow on observations have, have really proven that that case now. I mean, how how useful how I mean, I, it's, it's kind of tough because we sort of <clears throat> like on the one hand, we just are interested in scientific questions, right? Like, mm -hmm. is there water? Where did it form? How did it arrive? How long has it been there? Where is it going? what's happening with the water. But then I think there's this whole other field, which is about like, you know, can we use it? How hard will it be for us to use it? So I'd like to kind of address those as sort of two separate threads, you know, take off the lunar, you know, the prospecting hat and just sort of from the science side, what, how did, how do you find this story of water fascinating and, and what are you hoping to learn from it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, they're kind of, I mean, even some of the stuff you just said answers that question a bit. Like, it's, it's fascinating because how did it get there? Um, how long has it been there? Um, 
you know, is it is it just, you know, part of the moon? Was it brought in by cometary impacts? What, like, you know, how did it get there? Um, I think we're fairly confident, you know, based on the measurements we have that, that it is usable. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who've been working on ways to extract um, things like oxygen and, and the water and, and um, stuff from the regolith um, and actually use it. So kind of what interests me is that, you know, just the fact that we can take this water, <coughs> I'm sorry, and use it to support human life, um, to potentially create rocket fuel, because, you know, rocket fuels hydrogen and oxygen, we can get those things from the lunar regolith. So being able to launch spacecraft off the moon, um, I think it's just, you know, being able to use these resources, not only from a scientific perspective of knowing you know, how they got there, what this means for the history of the moon, but just like what it means for the future of, of us living on the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you grab some water? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I got some right here. Okay, take okay. Thanks. Yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, that's a rookie mistake. I sort of like, you know, yep, a couple yep, of times no. I've forgotten water and then I was like, ah. um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so then, I mean, so let's talk a bit about like where some of this water might be, but might be positioned. So, I mean, there's the lunar that's mixed in with the regolith. There's also the, the water that is mixed in just with, or that could be like actual deposits, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, it's not something I know a lot about. But yeah, I think it, um, that's kind of a question to answer, be answered is, you know, how how much of it is, it's, it's most likely mixed in with the regolith that's there. Um, you know, to what extent? I don't, I don't know that we're gonna like dig and find an ice block per se. Um, and, you know, it's probably just, you know, these permanently shadowed areas that are very cold, um, that just really allow for the water to to remain there without, you know, evaporating or, or going anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it may be in the rocks. It's probably likely just mixed in with the regolith. Um, and and then what is the process that you would actually be able to utilize that water for, you know, for your rocket fuel, for your breathable atmosphere, whatever? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to have an answer for that just because it's not, it's not what I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> developing those systems. Um, but yeah, there's there's a couple things that you know I, I've kind of seen through the years without having a lot of details of. Um, just different extraction processes that people are working on to grind up rocks and essentially grab these these different chemicals from them um, or elements, the water, whether it be you know water, oxygen, hydrogen. A lot of it's going to you know just depend on you know grinding up rocks and using different different systems. So I really can't tell you much more than that because I don't develop them. But, yeah, but yeah. there are lots of people working on it. Um, it's a big big area of study in our field. Well, the thing that I found quite fascinating recently is is that. Uh, up until this point, it was really felt like the the inner solar system from from Vesta inward or is dry as a bone. That mm. that that there's just no volatiles at all, and the story really seems to be now more so that in fact the just below the surface there are volatiles a lot more than anyone was ever anticipating, and so. Yeah that alone is kind of a fascinating again you know you, you wear your two hats like on the one hand you've got your your science hat and you're just kind of saying like how come why and yeah. what what can we learn about the story you know if those volatiles are there we could learn a tremendous amount about just the history of the solar system mm -hmm. but if they are um if if you know then you put on your hat and you say why wow, you could just grind up a medium-sized asteroid and 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 now you've got volatiles and so you don't necessarily need to go down to, you know and tear up the moon for those for those for those purposes but you know from a, from a practical sense isn't it like way harder than anybody thinks i think i think probably yes again without <laughs> knowing all the details yeah it's it's not an easy thing you know i think if it was we we probably would have been doing more of it by now you know yeah um you, but I know you've been working, I believe you had been working with Blue Origin. Are you still working with Blue Origin? Yeah, on... yeah. So um, I am on Blue Origin's uh, science advisory board for their Blue Moon Lander project. Yes, I'm still on the board. And so I, I would, you know, without necessarily uh, revealing too many details, I mean, what kind of information do they need to need from you? Yeah, yeah. So so the things they're kind of interested in from the science advisory board are, uh, well, there's, there's several things. Um, primarily, you know, they want to stay up to date on, on the scientific questions that need to be answered. Now, they're not necessarily looking to deliver their own scientific payloads. You know, they're, they're you know, going to have customers that, that will, um, you know, pay to have their payloads sent. But that being said, they're, you know, they're going to need to select landing sites. And you want to make sure you pick landing sites that, you know, are of scientific value. Um, honestly, anywhere on the moon, you're going to learn something. So they're all valuable. But 
um, you know, they're coming to us, you know, wanting to know like, okay, where are the places that we should land and we can feasibly land. And then they're just wanting guidance on, on things like, you know, payloads and payload capacity, you know, what kinds of payloads should we be looking at? How should we get them to the surface? Um, you know, how can we mitigate issues like, like dust? Because that's a big problem. Yes. Yeah. So they're coming to the, you know, the scientists just looking at, um, you know, it's always good. You gotta have scientists and engineers working together. So they want to know, okay, what are you guys interested in, and how can we make that work with this design? Um, how do we need to change our lander design to accommodate things that scientists need, in terms of you know power systems and thermal systems and, and things like that? Yeah. Well, you must have poured over thousands of pictures from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So yeah. if there's some place that you know, there's some places on, down on the surface of the Moon, some specific places that you've sort of travel to with your imagination that you would love to to see from the ground specifically yeah yeah, yeah i mean I've, i have a few favorites um one that's kind of um i guess been closer to my heart in the last few years um is is this place called aristarchus um there's there's both a, a plateau and a crater um mm -hmm. this whole area is just there's just so many interesting things there's um the crater itself um may have excavated some of these silicic volcanic materials that i mentioned earlier so these like um, granitic materials, rhyolites. Um, there's a lot of different types of volcanism in this area. On the, the plateau, there's pyroclastics, which are explosive volcanism products. Um, it's also right next to possibly some of the youngest volcanics on the moon. So if you can get there and like have a rover, um, just the stuff you can learn in terms of volcanism alone, and that's not even addressing any other areas of science that you can learn about the same area. Um, there's just so much. Um, the samples we could take, um, you know, the data we could get. Um, you could learn a lot about, you know, even volatiles in the pyroclastics because they tend to retain um, volatiles within the glass beads that tend to be produced there. Right. Well, so I mean, we're fairly familiar yeah. with, say, like the Curiosity rover, and we've all mm -hmm. seen pictures and we've seen it selfies and stuff. How yeah. would a rover crawling around the moon be different from what we are familiar with with Curiosity? Yeah, um, it's probably different in a, a few different areas. Um, the regolith on the moon is obviously different, so um, it may be that it, you know, it needs to be designed differently to drive on a different terrain. Um, driving on the moon, um, in some regards, could be easier because we don't have windstorms. You know, we don't have stuff like that to worry about. The bigger thing you really need to worry about driving around the moon are um, first off craters. There's just so many of them. Um, but you know, once you're on the surface, if you got the right kind of navigation tools, you know should be easy enough to get around those. Um, but surviving the night is, is yeah. the issue, um, because of the, the temperature extremes. Um, so you've got to have the right kind of, um, you know, power and thermal systems to keep your rover alive overnight and then hopefully wake up again on the next lunar day. So can we talk about that for a second? Like, like yeah. what, what kind of extremes, like if you're an engineer and you're being told what the criteria are that you have to design for, how, how tough would it be? How awful is it? Yeah. Um, goodness, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers. I want to say, and somebody out there may, may correct me if I'm wrong, it's something like 400 degrees Celsius difference between the two extremes. Maybe right. it's three, four, 300, 400. It's, it's a big temperature swing. Yeah. Um, enough that you need to be concerned. You know, it's incredibly warm during the day. There's no atmosphere shielding you from um, the solar radiation or anything. Um, so then it's very cold at night um, when you're you know, obviously not in the sun. For two weeks. Yeah, and it's two weeks long. Yeah, right. yeah, the day and the night are both two weeks long. So it's not like you just got to survive for a few hours and then you wake up and keep on going. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and I mean, so. we look at what what <coughs> ended spirit uh, or ended opportunity just just in the last couple of years that it the big dust storm came in and it had solar panel reduced down to some fraction of its normal solar input and it couldn't keep its it couldn't keep its its internal temperature warm enough and it it, it couldn't keep its electronics going couldn't recharge its batteries and it died mm -hmm. that's a paradise compared to what a lunar rover is going to have to deal with because it's going to have yeah. to be keeping its electronics going you know for two for weeks of frigid temperature colder than spirit ever or opportunity ever went through and yeah, then on the yeah. flip side hotter than anything opportunity ever went through yeah but you know at the same time the russians did it in the 70s so it's not it's not impossible right it's just you know, you've got to have you know the right design it yeah. obviously makes everything cost more and makes it bigger and more complicated but yeah it's not impossible it's just it's just tough yeah um and then of course the the regolith itself i know is incredibly <laughs> gritty 
Like mm -hmm. this stuff is, is very, uh, very hard on, on your electronics. So have the rovers that have already done their work, did they fail because, you know, due to the, like, were they able to see what kind of problems they were having with this actual regolith? Yeah. Um, from the things that I have, you know, read or seen, um, I don't know that I've seen that they really had massive issues because of the, the regolith. Um, I think some of the Apollo, the, the lunar rovers that they kind of drove around, um, they kicked up a lot of dust, but none of them failed because of dust, as far as I know. Um, I think the the Chinese, the U-2 rover, I want to say it didn't survive the night, um, but I don't remember if that was the exact failure mechanism. Um, uh, the, the, there was a while ago now. The, the U-2, the first one, not the second one. The first one, one. yeah. The yeah. second one's going. Yeah. Um, it, it has also survived the lunar night. Yeah. Uh, but no, from what I've read, I mean, yes, the, the dust is an issue. Um, the regolith on the moon is, is pretty compact. So in terms of driving, I don't think there's a lot of um, issues. It's more yet if it gets lodged in your mechanics or your instruments, um, those are things to worry about. Um, but from what I can remember, I don't think any one of them has actually you know failed because of the dust. Right. But still something you have to think about. Yeah, just don't breathe it. Yeah, you don't we, want to breathe. Yeah, it's interesting, though. I mean, we had Phil Metzger on a couple of weeks back, and we were talking about just some of the work that he had done just in, in simulating how the dust gets sprayed up into orbit when one of your rockets comes down, and it can actually damage other spacecraft that are attempting to land, you know, a roughly the same time as you. Like, I mean every place seems to have its own interesting challenges. And you talked about the temperature difference. And of course, there's there's the regolith. Um, there's the lower gravity. Is that helpful, harmful? Uh, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I guess it probably depends on what scenario you're looking at. Um, yeah. So in terms of, you know, a rocket exhaust landing, for example, you don't have a lot of gravity pulling that dust back down, which is both good and bad because you know, on one hand you kind of want it to come down so it doesn't hit other things but on the other hand you know it might you know kind of shoot it farther away and maybe i don't know um yeah it really just depends on what you're talking about yeah because um one of the bigger issues i think is, is some of the electrostatics because of the mm. lack of, of atmosphere it's not really related to gravity per se um these day night swings charge the dust and that kind of will cause it to loft and um and things as well but yeah, the gravity question is interesting. I think I think it just depends on what you're looking at in terms of the dust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you looked into these fascinating uh, lava tubes and the sort of caved mm -hmm. in roofs of these lava tubes? I haven't done a lot of work with them personally, but you know I, I'm familiar with them and some of the the work that's going on regarding the lava tubes. Yeah, um, they're of interest for for a few different reasons. Um, First off, we don't know, you know, how expansive they they are underground. Um, so that's one thing that, that different people are looking at. They're of interest as a potential, you know, habitat type area for humans because they'll, you know, they're shielded from radiation and micrometeorite bombardments and different things like that. Yeah, they're they're definitely interesting features. Again, that I, I don't study a lot about them, but um, you know, get down on one of those, you can actually see the different layers in the regolith and learn some about the, you know the history of the things that were deposited there, whether it be impacts or volcanics or different materials, but they're, they're definitely fascinating. I find them very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then one of the other things that I found really interesting was apparently the, um, the Chinese lander did have a, a ground penetrating radar on it. It was able to map out the depth of the regolith yeah. underneath it was, did you read that paper? Was that a surprise to you? Um, how much regolith? I, I, don't remember if I read the paper. I do remember seeing the news about it. Yeah, um, like dozens it, of meters deep yeah. of regolith. Like it just went on and on and on. Like no, that. it did, it just it didn't surprise me. Just mostly because I'm you know in the field and I kind of knew that it was it was deep. pretty dense. Yeah. Um, and just like if you think about the moon's history, you know, it's just been bombarded for millions of years, and it's just impact after impact building this regolith up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's we need more ground penetrating radar because I think it's really interesting to figure out how deep it is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when we look at the we look at the pictures of the moon from our telescopes and even from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter, and when you see like the bottoms of those craters, they just look like these beautiful, perfectly smooth, almost mm -hmm. like like fluffy snow like conditions and yet of course when we saw the astronauts walking around on the moon but i'm just imagining just 
billions of years of impacts throwing out debris. And of course, us learning that if a rocket can kick that debris into orbit and have it land on the other side, it's like it's constantly snowing lunar debris on itself. Yeah from everywhere all the time and just building up and building up and building up and it's, yeah yeah that's really interesting i've never thought about, about it that way but yeah 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 that this stuff is you know like known as a dusty place <laughs> yeah yeah but just the fact that that it that a asteroid can hit on one side the debris yeah. can fly up and then end up on the other side of yep. the moon yeah. because that you know can be following some kind of parabolic trajectory and yeah. i think the thing that always gets me too is just even with rocket exhaust this particles being you know, ejected out of lunar orbit, you know, reaching escape velocity. That's just, it's fascinating to me. It's, you know, obviously a dangerous thing as yeah. well, but um, yeah, it's just very fascinating. How, how, we talked a bit about the, the state of lava, how seismically active do we think the moon is at this point? Yeah, so so the moon's not seismically active in the, the same sense that you might think of, of the earth being seismically active. So, you know, on earth, we obviously have earthquakes um, produced when, you know, the plates um, are moving and, and different things. Um, but the moon doesn't have plates or plate tectonics. Um, any seismic activity you get from the moon is, is from, you know, one of a few different sources. Um, we have um, kind of, uh, I guess, what do they call them? So, so basically the, the stress on the moon from different thermal stresses can make it contract and expand. Um, and that can give you some seismic activity. Um, even some of the seismic data from Apollo, which is from, from impacts um, actually generating shaking within, within the moon. Hmm. Um, we actually don't have a lot of data um, about, I guess, the seismic activity of the moon. Again, it's not plates, it's more these, these internal stresses. Um, um, so there are a lot of people who are looking to try to get some more seismometers on the moon to answer these questions because we had them on Apollo and we had a few, but they were they were cut off after the Apollo missions. Um, and we really need more kind of global seismic data to really know how many, you know, how much moonquake um, activity is yeah. happening. Um, the I mean, it's funny, like the InSight lander that's on the on Mars right now, I'm sure that would be a wonderful uh lander to have on the moon as well to answer yeah. similar questions. We can get a seismometer that mm -hmm. sensitive onto the moon to be able to see it. But it, so, so, so it's more like, I mean, like we know that Mercury, for example, is contracting and as it's kind of cooling down from its, from its formation and that it's caused weird jumbled up terrain. And so you're just, you're getting this, you know, the moon is still cooling down to some, to some degree. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, like I said, it's the kind of these temperature swings, the internal stresses. Um, I think there may be, again, with it being a little bit outside my area of expertise, some, some of the tidal forces even that experiences with Earth. Um, right. You know, just like a push and pull on the moon. Yeah, you get, you get, you get, we don't get, you know, you know, again, we don't get like earthquakes like we do um, on, on Earth. But uh, you, there are different surface expressions of this, you know, contracting and expanding of, of the lunar surface. So yeah, so there is seismic activity. It's just different. How how much do we know about the far side of the moon? Mm -hmm. We we know a good bit. Um, again, we don't have samples from the far side. Well, we don't have samples where we like know exactly where they're from. We may have some far side samples in the meteorite collection, but we, we talked about that earlier. No, we can't really say where any of those are from for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't have any samples. Um, but we do have you know a lot of orbital data. Um, and that's really where we get kind of the majority of our information about the far side in terms of. Um, you know, the, the composition of the, the crust and how thick it is, it's, it's thicker on the far side. Um, there's a lot less volcanic activity on the far side. Um, so there, there are a lot of um, unanswered questions, again, because we haven't been to the surface, um, with the exception of the, of the Chinese mission that's down near the, the pole um, that is on the far side. Um, but yeah, it's largely unexplored, but we know probably more than maybe a lot of people realize, but there's a lot to be learned. But I mean, the far side looks remarkably different, as you said, less volcanic activity. Really, we see it's just all craters on the far side without those mare that we see on the on the near side. So what at this point do you think is the cause of that? We don't know. Um, I'm sure there are some theories. I don't I don't have, you know, a favorite or anything. But uh, yeah, that's kind of one of the big unanswered questions in lunar sciences. We call it the, the dichotomy. Um, why is the crust thicker, um, you know, on the far side? And why is there less volcanism? Um, and again, you know, there, there are a few theories out there. I'm, I'm not well versed on, on most of them. But yeah. it's, it's, it's what we don't know. So, so, so then that. I mean, if you could wave your magic wand, what would be the what would be the evidence that you would like to collect that would help you 
get closer to that answer? Yeah, um, I think if you almost any like lunar scientist you ask is going to say samples. We yeah. just need more samples. Um, right. You know, they tell us about the composition, they tell us about the history, they can tell us about the depths from which they came, and really tell us a lot about the internal structure of the moon and the activity and the different things that that helped lead to its formation. Um, uh, trying to think, you know, anything that can like give us information in terms of the, the timing of the volcan volcanics, the timing of the, the um, impacts, especially the big basins that really reshaped the moon. Um, we'll really just start to answer a lot of these questions. There's gonna be a lot of, you know, it's a puzzle. There's a lot of pieces you gotta grab at, whether it be samples right. or like, um, you know, data regarding the internal structure. So, you know, more of this, this radar um, type data that can tell us about you know, how deep everything is and what the internal structure is like. I just think there's gonna be a lot of different pieces you got to put together to really answer the question of what's happening. Yeah, we covered a, a story actually here on the on this channel about a year ago talking about this, this sample of the Earth that was found on the moon and brought back from the by the astronauts mm -hmm. that and you can think about this complex series of events where some object smashes into the Earth, the rock lands on the moon and then multiple impacts bury this this sample down deep on the moon and then other impacts dig it back up and then we talked about this earlier about how potentially you've got an impact and then samples are being thrown you, know, you pick up a rock and you think oh you know this just came off of that shelf over there and has just landed on the ground but it could very well have have traveled from literally the other side of the moon and yep. then plunked down on the surface so like a many, 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 like you say, you seriously want a lot of samples. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you're going to need them. I mean, it, okay. One good example is Apollo 12. Um, it landed on the ray of Copernicus crater. And so, which was not necessarily close to the landing site. It was a good, good deal away. I don't know how far exactly, but um, that's one reason we, we think we know the age of Copernicus is because of these samples that Apollo brought back, Apollo 12. Um, but yeah, so you, you, you know, that is one thing to think about when you land on the moon, you could very well be landing in the, ejected debris of a crater from the other side. So yeah, you know, you gotta be strategic. You def definitely when planning samples and you need, yeah, like you said, more than one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I sort of imagine like a, a geologist walking along the side of a hillside and they find a rock and each one of these rocks has a story. Where did it come? Where did you come from? Right. And you're like looking around you're like, Oh, there's an exposed granite half a kilometer mm -hmm. up and it must have come rolled down the hill and got yep. here from there. But if there's no granite around, then there's some other story. Oh, there used to be a river here or whatever. Right. Um, and so that, that same, I can just sort of imagine that same fascinating, almost detective process with every single rock. <clears throat> you have a few hundred kilograms of samples that were brought back from the astronauts. I don't know, like a thousand years ago. Um, <laughs> Uh, it feels like it. It feels like it. I know. I know. It's like these, these, these rocks again. Um, uh, do you think that there's going to be a bit more of an, like an industrial scale of sample return this time around? Are you um, pitching for that? Huh. It, it sounds like you really want samples is what I I'm hearing. I can definitely tell you that lunar scientists are pitching for it. Um, the last I heard, and I'm not, you know, like directly involved in the Artemis program per se. Um, so I don't know all the, the inner workings and plannings at the moment. Um, the last I heard, I don't think the sample volume was actually that large. I don't think it was even larger than Apollo, you know, for the first mission at least. Um, but it is one thing that lunar scientists are pushing for because, I mean, if you think about the Apollo samples, it's been 50 plus years now and we're still learning from them. We still haven't even opened some of them. You know, yeah. that's kind of the big thing that's happening right now. Um, so, and which was a strategic planning on, you know, the Apollo scientists and engineers part of, you know, waiting to open these till we had improved technologies. And I think we're going to want to do the same thing. We're going to want to bring a lot back. We're going to want to look at a lot of it now. We're going to want to hold on to a lot of it for, you know, you know, 50 years down the road again, when we maybe have different ways to analyze it. So, yeah. So I think there's a lot of reasons to really advocate and push for large sample volumes. Um, you know, like again, and you know, you just said, you know, this each rock has a different story. So you don't want to just get one or two rocks or, you know, just one or two kilograms. You're gonna need a lot more than that to really start to piece things together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I I'm I'm kind of imagining either whether it's people or whether it's some sort of rover doing sample return and you also want core samples and you also want yeah. you you know, you want to dig down multiple meters into that regolith and pull back up a big core sample and, and bring that home and 
tear that apart and see what's yeah. inside. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've got a couple of questions. Um, uh, well, Larry Beckham, <laughs> Larry Beckham is asking, is your job uh, essential at the time? How has this, this situation changed the way you do your work? I'd be interested to know as someone who is involved in various missions, um, mm -hmm. at various stages, how has, has the event, uh, influenced your, uh, your sort of day-to-day -day yeah. activity? Yeah. So my, I, I don't think anyone's out there saying my job is essential, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, my job, like particularly, I actually am a remote worker 100% of the time. Um, so I work remotely for my company. Um, everything I do is on a computer and, you know, data comes to the spacecraft. So in terms of like what I can do, um, that has not changed. Uh, I can still do all the same research I was doing. Um, the only thing that is different is now I'm home with two kids and a <laughs> husband. And so it's more of like, when do I have time to actually do the work? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so no, I've, I've definitely gotten lucky in the sense that um, you know, my, my research, my grant money, none of that has, has been affected. So, yeah, it's, I, you know, my life has changed. Not at all. The, you know, I still, yeah. I work, for, I broadcast from the same location. I manage, my team has been remote for the entire duration of this. So, um, yeah. I'm uh, just on zoom a lot more than yeah, I know. I know it's made. Uh, and that's the joke that I keep making every week is that, you know, everybody is so much better trained on zoom these days. I, I have much less technical support to bring my guests on, which is, which, I know where the lighting is best in my house. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. 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 They've worked through a lot of their security issues. It's gotten, things have, have become markedly, uh, improved. Yep. Um, uh, so Johnny Wednesday is asking, is there a statistical difference between the near and far sides in terms of number of craters? Mm, yes. Um, I, I don't have a number for you, right. but, um, primarily yes, because if you look at the near side, um, you'll see all of the, um, old lava flows, the Mare basalts, um, they're a lot smoother. They're a lot younger. So they are just have a fewer craters on them because they're, they're younger. They haven't been exposed as long. Um, and because that is, you know, such a large part of the near side of the moon, there's obviously fewer craters. Yeah. The far side has a lot more. But, but do we think that the near side was hit by less craters or hit by less objects, or it was just resurfaced. And so I, that I, evidence was hidden. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it was just resurfaced. Um, I don't think one side was exposed more than the other, but that being said, you know, we are, you know, tidally locked with the earth. And so you have, you know, you know, they're, they're not exposed to the same part of space all the time. Um, so it could be the impactors that were coming in could have hit one side more frequently than the right. other. Uh, I'm not sure if we know hundred percent for sure. Cause there is the, you know, the extensive resurfacing of the near side. So it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it might be that impactors that were going to come from the earth side were gobbled up by the earth instead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you do have this, you know, asteroid eater right there too. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's always fascinating to think about that when we look up at the moon or when we look at the moon in a telescope or pictures, or whatever, we just see this, just this obliterated surface. The earth must've been worse. Oh yeah. Right. Until it's very, you know, it's plate tectonics kicked in or in all of the surfacing that's resurfacing that's yeah. gone on. I mean, we're a bigger gravity well than the moon is. Yeah, and then that's one one reason why a lot of people are really interested too in in the um, kind of environment history of the moon because it tells us a lot about what Earth went through. Um, you know, we're not just in it for the moon all the time. You know, there are a lot of questions that'll tell us about what was going on in the whole Earth system as well, or the whole inner solar system for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Arjun is asking: um, Is the moon less differ differentiated than the Earth since it's so small? Are there more metals on the surface? Um, oh, metals. <laughs> I am not a sample person, so I'm not going to try to talk about metals, but, um, yeah, so there, there, it is, you know, somewhat less differentiated. If you just look at rock types in general, there's a lot fewer, um, you know, we don't have, you know, there's not old, you know, water flow, you know, oceans, things like that, creating sedimentary rocks or anything. Um, it's primarily, you know, like volcanic rocks and, um, you know, the, the, the crust of the moon that was formed early in history. So I'm going to go with yes, but I don't know that I can really expand upon a lot right. of the other more specific questions. I mean, we know that there's a lot of really interesting metals that are bound up with the regolith in the rocks itself, like titanium and aluminum yeah. and iron yeah, and, iron and, and that, things yeah. like that, but not necessarily the the kinds of deposits. Let me, I mean, again, I'm, you know, not a geologist, Um but, am I. 
but but we find um but we find like various amounts of set of like various kinds of metal and stuff can actually be caused by activity that happens on the earth that's different like having the water as you said having sediment etc that can create some concentrations of some of these mm -hmm. kinds of of materials that we see here on earth yeah yeah and we definitely you know have areas where you know you know, some basalts may have higher titanium or lower titanium or higher iron. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's, there's you know, differences differences there as well. Uh, Aaron's is asking, do people on the moon use time on Earth like 24 hours? How do you think that people would count lunar time if they were if there was a base there? Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what the Apollo astronauts did, but I, I imagine we would, you know, count it very similar. Um, you know, we think of the lunar day. We, we call it a lunar day because you know for the moon that is one day but for us it's two weeks um so yeah i think you know if we were living and operating there we may you know operate on a similar time scale i mean who's going to want to count however many hours or in two weeks every day but um yeah interesting yeah. question and this is something that we'll have to figure out before we want to be there long term well, well i know like the the people who work the mars rovers they had to deal yeah. with this this situation they had an extra yeah. however you know half an hour a day or whatever that they had to deal with and so each day they had to um, focus on, you know, they, their shifts would move following Mars yeah. time. And eventually they're working yeah. in the middle of the night and going home in the day. And then mm -hmm. eventually they, they gave up and went back to regular Earth time. And just sometimes, you know, different people were able Weird. to work on the rovers. Yeah. 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 And, you know, if you think about it, we haven't had a, a human presence or even, we you know, a lander really presence on the moon that's lasted more than a lunar day from the US side, you know, there's there's been Russia and China. So so yeah, there's a lot of operational things we'll have to figure out when we do have a long duration mission. Um, Sean Marston is asking, um, can you talk about the possibilities of mining helium? I'm sure you've heard this a million times mining helium on the moon as we're running low here on here on Earth. Uh, again, I mean, how much helium is really there on the moon? Yeah, that unfortunately, that's not something I really know the answer to. You know, I know it is widely discussed um, and it is most likely present, but I don't really don't know how much or how feasible it is to get it. Yeah, it's kind of not something I've really. Yeah, it's done. fairly low. Like I forget the, the numbers is like you can get you'd have to like chew up an acre of regolith to pull some concentration. Yeah. It's not like, yeah, you're just going to land somewhere and the huh, helium three. I found it. Yeah, yeah no. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just jam that into the fusion yeah. reactor yeah. and away you go. Mm -hmm. um uh what about solar flares arjun was asking mm -hmm. about solar flares do we think about how bad solar flares are on the surface of the moon uh that's a good question um it is it is you know something to be concerned with because you know the again the moon doesn't have an atmosphere or really a whole lot of anything protecting it from you know solar radiation um so yeah so especially when we want to send you know human or even a rover for that sake um to the moon yeah there's things to think about in terms of radiation exposure um yeah and you know i, I couldn't speak necessarily to how much more significant a solar flare is going to be than just you know prolonged solar radiation but yeah this is something to think about yeah i mean we know that the moon doesn't have a magnetic field but there's something going on there i mean there's some pretty interesting features on the surface of the moon like the i don't know if you've seen the lunar swirls there's oh, yeah. these yeah, so there is some kind of localized magnetic activity, but not enough to protect you from. Yeah, just yeah. Enough if to make you're life in one of these worlds, like maybe, maybe, but yeah, it's it's very small. There's no yeah, like you said, no global magnetic field. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but again, I guess, do we know if it had one in the past? I, I think that's again another um, kind of unanswered. More question. samples, please. Have global, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people look into that as well. Um, uh, uh, so use Nord is saying, could there ever have been life on our moon? I'm going to go with no. <laughs> We've not seen even like the slightest hint of evidence, you know, and the whole, you know, lack of really water atmosphere. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of things that would really support any kind of life that's gonna enjoy being there so. i mean even like like we think that maybe venus was better earlier mm -hmm. on in this solar system's history we think that maybe mars was better early on in the solar system's history but i mean with the moon with its low gravity it yeah. just can't hold an atmosphere right no, and it, you know it was it was molten in its early history it was volcanically active it was just not it, it's never really had the right conditions for any kind of life yeah 
Yeah. One one thing that I that I found that was actually pretty interesting um, was, you know, we always talk about how the moon is slowly drifting away from the Earth. And apparently it it went through a lot of that that distancing fairly early on in its history. It's not like a smooth drift yeah. away that people think it actually did the bulk of its drifting away and then has been slowing it down. So it was, you know, however many million years ago it was, it wasn't that much bigger in, in the sky. Um, uh, so uh, Roger Wilco asks, have they, ever bought, have they ever tried growing anything in lunar regolith? Um, yes. <laughs> I don't know all the specifics, but um, actually the, the Chinese mission that's on the, the surface now, Shang 4, um, they tried growing something. I'm not sure what the status of, of the end result of that whole experience. Yeah, it worked. They they had a, I mean, they had a tiny little greenhouse, but I don't think they were using regolith specifically, but they had a tiny little greenhouse and they grew like four different plants. And then when mm -hmm. the, when the lunar night came, they all died. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe those may not have been in the regular per se. Um, yeah. You know, I know there's been other people who've done experiments growing plants and like kind of Martian simulants and things. I'm sure there's been something in lunar type simulants or, or um, similar conditions. I don't, again, I'm not well versed on what happened there, but yeah, um, I, I'm pretty sure it's something that has been looked at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it will continue to be looked at. Um, Corey S is asking, what's the smallest rover that you could land on the moon? Better have wheeled walker jumping, flying, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know, you know, a number for you in terms of size or anything, but there's a lot of different scenarios, you know, that have been looked at. And with the moon, you know, having lower gravity, you know, you can't go too small or you're not going to rove, but you can still go pretty small because it's not, you know, it's not impossible to land there. Um, and there are a variety of different types of, you know, rovers or hoppers that, that have been proposed. Um, most things have been, you know, slightly larger scale. You know, you, you think of, you know, the Mars rover, Spirit and Opportunity. I mean, you know, we've, we've driven things similar size on the moon. I don't know that we would go much smaller just, just because you generally want to take a lot of instruments with you if you're going to um, take the time and effort to go there. But that being said, there's a lot you can do with a small rover as well. You know, maybe you just want a ground penetrating radar and a camera or something. You know, maybe you're just doing some prospecting and only right. need a few instruments. Yeah, but you can go pretty small. But it's more like, I guess it's more about the launch mass and what you can yeah. fit onto your rocket and less about how it's going to perform once it, yeah. once it arrives there. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, there would definitely be some engineering differences to have. Yeah, a that, that comes down a lot to engineering then. Yeah. 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 But like, if you've only got 200 kilograms that you can put on top of your Falcon 9 rocket, that's all you've got. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then however big a rover that turns into is. Yeah. I think cause you got to have the lander and then the rover. Yeah. Right. Think about. So, so yeah. So yeah, you can, you can send a pretty, pretty small little rover there. Yeah. Like you said, it's a lot of it comes down to engineering and launch um, and, you know, scientific objectives at some point. Yeah. But of course, you know, we have seen SpaceX um, talking about how they may want to be able to say, take Starship and actually land on, on the moon. And of course. That terrifies me. Yeah. That, so that terrifies you. Yeah, with, just because it's so big, yeah. <laughs> but think of all the samples. Yeah, well, I so so it's funny you mentioned having Phil Metzger on a few weeks ago. I actually worked for him for several years, um, and we do similar research in terms of you know blast effects. So that's what that's the part that scares me. It's not the you know why we're going or what we're going to do when we're there. It's the the actual landing part because it's just so much dust. Yeah. Um, yeah, that part of it makes me a little nervous. Yeah, I, I, I think you know before we did that that interview with with uh, Doctor Doctor uh, Metzger, most people weren't familiar with this problem. I wasn't yeah. to that extent, and it was quite a fascinating. You know, people could sort of see it dawning on me um, as he was talking about the scale of this problem, and I was just like, "Oh no, yeah, that's awful." That it's a problem, and it's a gigantic rocket that's going to be blasting a tremendous amount of of propellant down onto the surface and kicking the stuff all everywhere and making yeah, you know and you just like grind away lunar reconnaissance orbiter just into dust as it's no please let's not do that <laughs> <laughs> or at least you know smashing up the the uh, the camera system or, or whatever um yeah. but think of all the room for yeah, yeah. well the samples would be great a lot of, kill t tons metric tons of samples um yeah. do, i mean people always ask the people versus robots argument mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um do you do you have an opinion 
Yeah, no, I think, I think there's value to both. I do, um, you know, feel pretty strongly that humans are more efficient. Um, there's a lot of good reasons to send humans um, instead of a robot, um, you know, primarily just because of the, the real-time decisions you can make. You know, if you think of a geologist in the field, a geologist could pick up a rock and say, oh, and this is what it is, and maybe it came from over there. If you have a robot or a rover doing the same thing, looking at a rock, you know, you got to take a picture and then like maybe brush it some and like send the data back and wait for the people to look at it and then tell you like, okay, maybe then drive over to this rock. And um, you know, the, the process just takes a lot longer. You know, there's a lot more science you can do in a short period of time um, with a human. You know, that being said, there's still value in rovers as a lot rovers can do with their instruments. Um, um, but yeah, but there's just humans can do a lot more, a lot more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think there's some pretty interesting hybrid concepts out there at this point as well, though. Like, um, I know that uh, Luca Palmertano uh, operated a rover on the surface of the Earth from the International Space Station. And you could imagine these sort of combinations where you do have, say, a geologist that's on the Lunar Gateway operating a rover very quickly almost in virtual reality and they really are they've got you know nimble little arms and they're picking things up and they're examining them and brushing them off and they don't have to go down and experience this the actual surface of the moon so yeah yeah that's definitely something that's been looked at is it's just kind of how you know humans and robots can kind of work together um whether it be you know a human on gateway or, or elsewhere driving a rover um, i'm actually going to be doing some field work later this year it's supposed to be this month until things happen yeah um apart from the but, event uh, yeah yeah the event <laughs> uh so we're actually I'm, I'm part of a survey team it's a solar system exploration research virtual institute um and one of our objectives is actually to take a rover in the field and we're gonna test a few different things you know an autonomous rover and then a rover that's you know somewhat assisted by human um you know we're gonna have scientists driving it in a back room and then at some point we're gonna have a Know, humans in the field helping the robot or the rover um so yeah just you know looking at the the performance and the functionality you know with these different scenarios you know whether it's working independently or working with the assistance of humans yeah there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios to, to look at it feels like i mean we've really gone through this revolution of of machine learning at this point i mean here we are a computer can beat anyone at a game of go or chess or or starcraft or or um recognize whether something is a cat or not a cat or make a picture of a person or whatever right that mm -hmm. that that kind of technology seems like it just has so much value for yeah. these kinds of autonomous autonomous rovers is that you know are you guys getting a chance to work with that kind of machine learning with these rovers um i our team i don't think we're gonna do any machine learning um, i'm not sure if others are but yeah. machine learning like you said is kind of a big you know thing that's really becoming really useful in our field and i actually haven't seen a lot about how it's you know maybe working together with like rovers and, and data that's being taken in the field but like i'm sure that's that is something somebody's thinking of um and will be very valuable in the future you know it's really valuable now just for working with large data sets from you know orbiters and like lro right now so could very well be applied to to rover data and analyzing that yeah yeah it's yeah gonna be very I mean, you sort of think about all of the separate pieces and that you could have a rover that that is able to navigate autonomously over some chunk of terrain. And then you also think about a rover that's designed or, a you know, a, some kind of uh, imaging subsystem that's designed to recognize different interesting geological samples. And you mash the two together and you've got a rover that's scampering across the landscape, finding interesting rocks and sticking them into its collection bag yeah, and, yeah. and moving and then bringing him home to some, you know, some very uh, reasonably sized sample return. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually one thing similar, we're gonna be testing on our rover is kind of a software package that's been developed to, you know, yeah, take this kind of data in the field and like, okay, what kind of rock is this? And then yeah, yeah. And ask the robot, yeah, yeah. you know, really robot, what is this? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the question is, can you teach a robot to to make a guess on what a rock is better than you can teach an astronaut? Yeah, yeah. Because there was that, uh, I don't know if you ever saw that the was it from the Earth to the moon where they, they had a whole episode where they taught the where they taught the crew of Apollo, uh, I feel like it was 12 or 14. Mm -hmm to be geologists. And that was how they yeah. found the sample of the, the one that told them they found the oxygen sample that told them that it was possibly came from the, uh, came from the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they had the a, training they went through was amazing. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. 
until you wonder, you know, will robots take their jobs? Yeah. I guess we'll find, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, actually kind of bouncing off that a little bit. I'm going to, I'm just going to answer and say no, um, <laughs> partly because, yeah, I think we could very easily, like, you know, we could train a rover to pick up a rock and do a good job of saying, oh, this is what this is. Yeah. Uh, but you still kind of miss on out on like the human aspect of just looking up and saying, okay, well, this is the context of where I'm at. And like, over here is a stream bed or over here is an outcrop or over here is this other feature. And just being able to really quickly put all that together and say, well, this is probably where this came from. Um, you know, rover, you know, to some degree could probably start to learn to do that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But just really taking in all those different pieces um, is, is going to be hard. So I don't think humans are out of a job for a while at least. But it is interesting, right? That here we are 50 years after the astronauts did that first job. And yet if you had to choose between, you know, a fairly capable rover, mm -hmm. which was being controlled by people back here on earth or an astronaut with a bag, yeah. <laughs> you'll take an astronaut with a bag. Yeah. Yeah. I would. Yeah. 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 Well, so there you go. They're they're The astronauts jobs are, are secure. Um, uh, so what do you see? What do you hope then as you know, for the long-term use of the moon, the long-term scientific approach of the moon as we move into the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, I guess I'm going to just answer from like a, maybe a personal perspective, you know, I can't necessarily speak for the community as a whole, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting things from a long-term scientific perspective for, for me, like, and, and the thing, the buzzword you'll hear kind of in the lunar community is like, we need a sustainable presence on the moon. But then there's always the question of like, well, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> like, does that mean that we have, you know, we have a habitat and we're living there all the time or we're just, we're coming and going frequently. Like it can mean a lot of things. Um, what I would like to see is just a continual cadence of missions to the lunar surface. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be to, you know, habitat at the South Pole. Um, but I want to see us going to different places at regular intervals um, because there's, you know, the South Pole is interesting. There's a lot to do there. It's a great place, you know, for humans to live, but there are a lot of other places on the moon that we really need to explore as well. So I think just keeping up the capability, you know, it doesn't have to be all human missions. You know, there can be plenty of, you know, there's plenty of sites we can go to and learn what we need to know with, with rovers or even static landers that, that don't move. Um, so just seeing a regular cadence of these missions, you know, both to the near side and the far side and the poles and humans and, and really integrating these things. And, and, and honestly, not even just from the US side, we need to have other countries in on it and sharing data yeah. um, because, you know, the, it's, you know, I get asked often, are we in another space race? And no, I mean, yeah, everybody wants to get there. And there's always, you know, maybe a little bit of a competitive edge, but really like, I think everybody's in this to get there and learn stuff. Mm -hmm. um, a really great chance for countries to work together so i guess my kind of long-term vision for science is just you know the u.s and these other countries just you know going to lots of different places um you know at frequent intervals and, and figuring out you know these different questions that you know keep arising you know we need samples from here we need samples from there we need you know seismic data from the whole moon you know it's just there's just a lot that can be done you know by going all over the surface of the moon yeah i, I mean I would love for there to be this time that there is a permanently inhabited uh, scientific base on the moon in the same way that there is something at Antarctica, in the same way that there is people in the international, I mean, there's been continuously inhabited space station flying above the earth for 20 years now, which is just a wonderful thought yeah. that you can always go out there and look up into space and know that there are people there have been people in space for this entire time. And, and it feels important. I mean, we will learn what the long term value of the moon is in our in our lives, and it might ne might have no value beyond its scientific value. And just the fact that we are learning to stretch out into space, yeah, live off our planet, or we may find that that sweet, sweet helium three and we just grind the whole moon away and yes. to feed our fusion reactors. It sounds like a thing that humans <laughs> might do as well. So, well, uh, we've reached the end of our hour. Uh, Dr. Watkins, it was great to chat with you today. Uh, thank you so much for explaining. If people want to follow your work, where should they go? 
Uh, there's a couple. Um, Twitter's is a good place to find me. Um, you know, I, I tweet there. I do have a website that probably needs updated, let's be honest, um, but I do have one. Or just go to the Planetary Science Institute's website and you can find my name under the staff page and there's information there about how to find me on different platforms. But yeah, you know, I'd say Twitter or just, you know, our, my website. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, I cannot wait to see what uh, what happens next with the moon. Me either. Thank you. I, was, I really enjoyed this. All right. Take care. All right. Bye.